class. It is uh, Sunday morning, November 17th. We continue our study called The Least of These. We're on page nine of the handout. We're going to start at E. And I want to remind you after I pray of the essential question we're looking at. So let me uh, commit our time to the Lord. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, how precious they are to you, how glorious that you have put into their hearts uh, a desire, a longing to know the truth. Thank you for our fellowship with you and with one another. And thank you for the word of God and how it brings light to our thinking about the most important things in life, our relationship with you and one another. Teach us, let the word of God shape, inform, convict, mold, all to the glory and praise of our God, Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We're sort of asking the, the big question, when I encounter people who act differently than me, look differently than me, speak differently than me, think differently than me, what are the biblical principles that shape that relationship? And obviously, this happens within the body of Christ, and you have relationships with people who aren't in the body of Christ. And the Bible does make some distinctions that way. So that's the, that's the big question we're trying to answer. We started from Matthew 25, where Jesus says, as much as you've done it unto someone else, the least of these, he created a category of needy people, you've done it unto me. So we started with a pretty sober, serious appraisal of when we treat other people, we must be thinking that we're doing it unto Jesus. And now we're teasing out some of the specifics. So look up with me on page 9 at the bottom. We've just gone through uh, a section where we're identifying neutrality. What do we have in common with each other? We tease out a lot of different things. Now we're going to ask the question, what are our, our social obligations in view of redemption, the glories of the gospel, God claiming us for himself, paying for us through the blood of his own son. The logic here that we're going to see is that our obligations and imperatives rest on reasoning from the greater to the lesser. If God has done this for me, what is implied for what I owe someone else? And so I've deliberately drawn this diagram putting, putting God at the top, where we've already seen neutrality, how, how do we view our relationship horizontally. Now we're going to see that vertically, we're going to reason from what God has done for us to what we owe each other. So God isn't outside of it. No one is outside of this. It's an all-inclusive thing. Another way to put it is this. What is your starting point for thinking about what you owe other people? Here's what I mean. Let's suppose you're a football coach and it's fourth down, and you have to decide whether or not you're going to go for it on fourth down. Sports fans tracking with me, you know the big decision. Do we go for it on fourth down? Is your starting point the wind direction or how many yards you have to gain? What's your starting point? It's how many yards you have to gain. If it's only six inches, you don't care how hard the wind is blowing into your face because you're not going to throw the ball. Right? Your starting point is, how many yards do we have to go? So in much of our thinking and our decisions, there's a starting point for our thinking. And we're going to see that the Bible teaches us that the starting point is reflecting on who I am in relation to God, who God is in relationship to me, and what that implies then for our relationships. Does that make sense? What's your starting point? Oftentimes where we get crosswise with each other is we have unbiblical, false, selfish, 
self-promoting, self-protective starting points in our relationships. But the Bible is true freedom. So we're going to tease out a number of as I, so you, as, so you, as, so you. And notice that the word as can have two senses. It can mean because, and it can mean in the same way. So maybe we'll ask that question as we look at some of these. So someone read the first one for us, right there under the word logic, and the verse. And I received you, so you receive one another. Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Thank you, Lee, and welcome back with your husband. Thank you for serving Jesus and remaining on a mission trip. Um, so what's the reasoning here? Is it causal or methodological? In other words, is it because Christ has uh, received you that you'd receive one another? Or is it in the same way? Sometimes it could be nuanced with both. Receive one another as Christ has received you. How has Christ received you? In spite of all your flaws, in spite of all your warts and pimples, Christ covers you with the beauty of his goodness. And on the basis of that, he relates to you. Doesn't hold your sin against you. He enters into it. Next one. Nice and loud for the people listening in Radio Land. Go ahead, yeah, Pat, uh, Pat, read the next two, yes. Ephesians 5, 2, that God is Christ loved us to walk in love. And 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Okay. Sometimes the as is in terms of an if-then, right, which would be very causal. So what do we know about the way Jesus loved us, that frames how we love other people. What's the, what's the major concept at the heart of that? What did Jesus do? He <laughs> laid down his life. He put you ahead of himself. So the pattern, and this is how Paul reasons the way husbands are to love their wives, is what did Jesus do for the church? He gave himself up for her. He laid down his life. He put the church's welfare ahead of his own. So now you know what love is. It's asking the question, what does it look like in this relationship? What can I do for this person that brings good to them, that puts their needs ahead of mine? As a rule. As a rule. It doesn't mean sometimes in human relationships, this relationship gets in such a direction that that person forfeits, forfeits certain things, Right? Uh, that, that happens in relationships. That's why there's such thing as discipline in a church. We treat each other as members and upstanding. We give each other the benefit of the doubt until such a time as someone acts in such a way that the, that the leadership of the church has to step in and, and love, make a correction. It's always for that person's good, though. It's always for their good. How about the next one, including the uh, four verses underneath it? <clears throat>
as I forgave you, so, so you forgive others. Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Matthew 18, 33. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And Colossians 3, 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must, so you also must forgive. Thank you, Lisa. So, what do you notice about the first one in Matthew six? It kind of reverses what I've been saying, isn't it? What's the starting point? I'm to look at what? Am I forgiving my debtors? Right. That's the starting point in that one. And I reason from that to, oh God, please. So it's okay sometimes to reverse the starting point. You know the story of the, uh, the uh, unforgiving debtor. You know, the, he owed $10 trillion and the, ma the master forgives him the sin. His buddy bars his lawnmower and breaks it. He owes him about 150 and he strangles him as a real. Should you not have had mercy as, in the same way, I had mercy on you. Joan Cathy wants to point something out about the Colossians 3.13 verse. It's what I learned as an indicative and an imperative. The indicative is because of what Christ has done for you at the beginning of Colossians 3, and then there's this whole list of imperatives, what we are then to be doing because we've been the recipient of what Christ has done for us. Great. That's what makes Christianity the distinct, unique religion in all the world. It's not, do this and God will accept you. It's that God has accepted you in Christ, so do this. God doesn't make you good in order to love you. God loves you in order to make you good. And so Paul's epistles all carry the same, uh, reveal the same format. He tells you the gospel. He tells you what Jesus has done, the indicative. As a result of that, if you're in union with Christ, this is what's true of you. Therefore, and there's usually a turn in the epistle, in the case of the Colossians, it's Colossians 3.1, since then you've been raised up with Christ. Keep your mind on the things above, put off the flesh, and then he gets into the social obligations beginning in verse 12, and then into parents, uh, work relationships, etc. It's a very distinct way Paul does it. Here's who you are, live that way. It's the foundation of biblical ethics. Be who you are. So you can, really can never treat people biblically unless you know who you are biblically. That's the way the Bible reasons it. Thank you, Joan Cathy, for pointing that out. Notice Ephesians 4, 32. What would you call that? Would you call that because or, be, or methodologically in terms of the as? Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, as God in Christ has forgiven you. What's that sound like? Again, it's hard to separate these two things. It really is. But has God been kind with you? Is God tenderhearted towards you? Yes. God has forgiven you. So in the same way. And again, it, it, if I'm, I'm dealing with somebody that I find it difficult to relate to, where do I want to start? How has God related to me? It's the only way to bring about uh, relational uh, harmony, peace, health, because these things are the things we use 
humanly, how do we relate to people? If I like you, you, I'll give something to you. The moment I find a reason not to like you, you're not getting it. That's the way human beings in the flesh do relationships. And God has something infinitely better that transcends that. Good. How about the next one? Jump in if you want to make comments, too. Who's got the one on mercy? As I mercifully love my enemies, including you, so you mercifully love your enemies. Luke 6, 36. But love your enemies and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Thank you. Uh, what do you want to say about that? What's the reason to love? How can you love your enemies? That's just humanly impossible, isn't it? We want to hate our enemies. We want them to get revenge. How can you ever you know, love your enemies? Where do you start? What was I when God loved me? I was his enemy. Here's a question for you. How much mercy have you received from God being his enemy? Answer? More than you know, <laughs> right? Isn't it always more than you know? We have no idea uh, how much mercy God has had on us. Now, we're conscious to a certain extent, and the more you read the Bible, the you more you're confronted with the character of God, the more you see the demands of the law of God and your inability to keep it, your quotient of your understanding of how much mercy you've received. Is, so I'll ask you, Christian, of how many of you have been a Christian 20 years or more? Most, most people in the room. Is your apprehension of the amount of God's mercy greater today than it was 20 years ago? Yes. And that's the way it should be. That somehow it's something we never get tired of, is it? Never get tired of feasting on uh, the mercy of God. So, love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return. Isn't that the gospel? What do we have to offer God in order to be saved? Nothing. Sin. The only thing you give God in order to be saved is sin. So all you can contribute to your salvation. Sin. You don't give it to God to get a reward in return because the reward for your sin would be what? Hell. And Jesus says, I'll take your hell for you. Set you free to know God as your Father, abounding with mercy. John Stocker wrote a song, Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affections and bound my soul fast. R-U-F put it to a new turn. Tune. Is it in the Trinity? Is that him in the Trinity? I don't know, but it's so good. Okay, sorry. How about the, the next one? This is Jesus speaking to you. Okay, then we go two in a row. As I humble myself for you, placing your welfare ahead of my own, so you humble yourself by counting others more significant than yourself. Philippians 2 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thank you, Emily. What would you... Um, just, are there some couples that have multiple handouts that we could share with our sisters who've come in late? I think I've run out of Are we out of handouts in the, in the north? Uh, is there anyone who could share? Oh, I have a handout. Thank you. Are you good? Wonderful. Good. Any comments about this? So what's the hardest thing in the world humanly to do? Think of others more important than yourself. Because pride, we're born with massive amounts of pride we're not even aware of. But pride always puts me first. Me first, me first. What's the, what's the middle letter of the word pride? I. I, 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 I. Right. There is no I in team. Right. There is no other in pride. <laughs> Except the way you use them for yourself. <laughs> Let's shift now, unless you want to say anything about the section we've just moved through. The Bible just really makes this very clear for us. It's this wonderful word, as, meaning because I've done this for you and in the same way as I've done it for you. Both. So let's uh, go on to F, social obligations in view of the day of recompense. So this first section, as you to others, so Christ to you. Who would read those uh, four verses? stop you there for a second. I want to talk about this a, little, this a little bit. So the first verse in there is an observation. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and suffers want. That raises a question. Why? Is there a dynamic at work underneath that? And that, What does that seem like? It seems counterintuitive. How can someone live a pattern of giving but end up with more and someone who hoards end up with less? As a rule, remember Proverbs, they are aphorisms, short, pithy statements that are observations, generalizations about the way life works. Okay? So you might ask the question, why? What follows is the principle, uh, the, the promise. Here's the promise. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. One who waters will himself be watered. What do you, what, what, where are you supposed to use that promise monthly? When you write your tithe, which is the first check in your budget. When you get your paycheck, as a rule, and you have all these expenses, mortgage, food, cell phone, car, gas, my wife has this escrow for insurance, so when the insurance bill comes up, it's not a big whopper, $1,000, she has this escrow, very wise woman. What's the first check written out of our available resources? What is God's? Actually, it's all God's. All he asks for is a tenth. That's not a lot. One dollar on the ten? It says enjoy nine out of ten dollars. One dollar on the ten. So this should be your pattern of giving. You get your paycheck. You give what is God's. That would be a minimal, a minimal starting point. 
as, as you're able, you should seek to increase that if you can, to giving to different causes and whatever. As a rule, this should go to the storehouse, the church where you receive blessing. And that tells you the money that you have to live on, right? So if you can't live on that, uh, what, belonging to a certain organization, then you drop the organization. If you can't live on it, because you have to live within your means. You can't spend more than you get in. Well, you didn't come for a lesson on giving, but you just got it. <laughs> okay, so, and the principle is, you can't outgive God. Does it take a lot of faith to live this way? It takes more faith for some than others. Some of you have incomes where it isn't an issue that you give 10% of your income. That might mean you need to give more. Right? If you make $500,000 a year, don't just give 10%. You can live on a lot less than that and give more. Anyway, you understand that. But you can't outgive God. He promises to enrich those who water. Then there's a threat. 26, the people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the hand. So if you're in agriculture and you're producing something, God binds you to provide for the society you live in by what you're producing. You're bound for the welfare of your fellow man. That's what that verse is saying. You can't grow all this food and hoard it. You're bounded by God to provide for other people's needs. You can sell it. You need to sell it. You can make a living. But uh, There's a whole lot there. I'm sorry for interrupting you, Rock. Continue. Proverbs 21.13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Pause. Sorry. What New Testament... Parable is a commentary on this. Good Samaritan. Good Samaritan? Okay, make a case for us on that. Uh, it's the underlying principle of, this, of what it just read. Okay. Think of another parable that this might. The rich man of Lazarus. Right, Lazarus is there at his gate. Please help, please. He just walks, he does this every morning. He just walks by. And then he's in hell crying out, and that cry is not answered. Continue, brother. Again. What this is saying is now, in some sense, God is going to relate to you the way you've related to other people. It's going to come back on you. Should that cause me to stop and think when somebody's different than me, that the way I treat them is in some way going to affect the way God treats me? There it is. A lot of these verses sort of have behind them, stop and think. Challenge your presuppositions. Disavow yourself of whatever cultural trappings have led to the way you think about relationships and make sure they're deeply biblical. Okay. That's three interruptions. That's all I get in one, right? In one day. I've only got one more Hungry and you gave me no food. I 
was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, hungry, poor, thirsty, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then you will say, answer them, say, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to among the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Stop and think. As you to others, so Christ to you. Next one. As you to... Um, as you to others, so you to Christ. This is a little bit where we began our class, but I think it's worth inserting here. As you to others, so you to Christ. Who's got it? I got it. Thanks, Pat. Proverbs 14, 31. Whosoever does his poor man, and sows his wheat, the poor realize they're doing that to God. But that verse says, who read Proverbs 17 this morning? You saw it in there. Proverbs 17, 5. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. God says, I so identify with the poor that when you mock or oppress the poor, you're doing it to me. That's the point. As to others, so you to Christ. Wow. Stop and think. When you lend to the poor, you're lending to God. That's a new condition, right? So there are important, wise questions to ask. How much should I lend to the poor? That's all part, that's fine, that's all part of it. But insert this into the equation. And when I do it, I'm lending to God. And what's the ultimate reason God has a particular concern for the poor? He had a son who was poor. Jesus himself was poor. It was scandalous, the Bible tells us, how was Jesus supported in his three-year ministry? The support of women. That's scandalous in that day, not for us. But you, know, you read that verse, I've, it's in the gospel somewhere, you just go, thank you for those precious women who got their resources and made sure Jesus had clothes and food and shoes or whatever it was. Wow. The Savior of the world, God in the flesh, was supported by the gifts of women. The Father has a poor son. The Savior himself understands poverty. He identifies with the poor. Is that the way we think about God? Um, next one is, as others to you, so others to Christ. Who'd read those two for us? Shirley? Luke 10, 16, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Okay, there's, again, the principle of solidarity. Now, that first applied immediately to the apostles, right? 
They specifically were commissioned and went in Jesus' name. People who refused them were refusing Jesus. But it's true of us. We represent Jesus. This is solidarity. Jesus so one with us that when someone rejects you for belonging to Jesus, they have rejected Jesus. That's a horrible thing. That's a fearful thing. We never want the reasons for them rejecting us in our stupidity or the reason in the offense of the gospel. Let them reject us for saying, you know, I really don't like you, but I can't quibble with the way you treat me. I can't quibble with your ethics. And I wish I believed what you said was true, but I can't. Wouldn't that be a nice way to disagree with an unbeliever? I wish it were true, but I'm not going to reject Jesus on the basis of the way you act. And unfortunately, Christians have given unbelievers fodder through history for rejecting Jesus based on the way they acted, unfortunately. That's why we always want to point people to Jesus. Then he will answer them, sorry. saying, you have nothing to be sorry about. <laughs> Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thank you, Shirley. There's the principle of solidarity. Now the next one has a typo. So take your pen and scratch out the first two. As you to others, so you to yourself. Okay, scratch out the first two. I think I corrected that on your version. Huh? Then you have a new, you have a new version of the handout. So there's text criticism here. You have the old manuscripts. I first caught this when I said... The older and the newer. The older and the newer. As you to others, so you to yourself. Who's got the Ephesians 5.28? In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Thank you. And add to that Hebrews 13, 3. Dory, uh, one of your ruling elders sitting right here, did a whole lesson on those in prison. That's where uh, the writer of Hebrews says, um, you know, identify with those in prison as though in prison with them, right? So Shirley right now is suffering with a very, very sick sister. She lives in Roanoke, Virginia. There's, there's lots of suffering in your life. We're suffering with Shirley. She's not our sister. She's her sister. And Shirley's our sister. And so her suffering has to be our suffering. And we want to have a community where you feel free to bear that burden with us. Sorry, was that that wasn't very good of you. Give her a hug afterwards. Conclusion. Let's stop and pray. Shall we do that? Yeah. She's, she's ready to be with Jesus. So pray for God's time. She won't suffer long. Let me ask the elders to come over and be surround Shirley, please.
thank you for Shirley's faithfulness to her family mm -hmm. and, uh, and all that's pulled her through. We really uh, sympathize with her heart and with the concerns that they have. <clears throat> There's so much baggage with that, with that family unit, uh, so much hurt. Lord, we just pray that your your grace would step in in a mighty way that we wouldn't understand or know how to engineer, but uh, but that your spirit would, would bless that family and even this this very difficult time that may bear fruit for you. And Lord, we're so thankful that her sister knows you and is ready to cross that threshold. Lord, we thank you for <clears throat> faith that you have given to members of this family. Lord, is that Achilles um, transition to your kingdom in peace and uh, pain that uh, she has gone through for so long. Lord, there's glory sitting before us. Surely is a trophy of your magnificent grace. She belongs to Jesus, as does her sister. Glory, you rescued two sinners from eternal perdition. Uh, there's glory in her tears. When you tell us in your word, you catch her tears in your bottle. There's glory in her suffering as you identify Lord Jesus with her and her loss. And there's glory in the comfort that only you can give. And we pray you lavish upon Shirley's heart, her sister's heart, and others, all others involved the uh, comfort and the hope of everlasting life and use Shirley's sister's passing to bring her children and other relatives to faith. Shine the light and the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ into hearts where it does not exist and bring them into relationship with you that they might worship and know you. In Jesus' name. Thanks, brothers. I owe you one. So I'd like to conclude the handout today. I think we can. Bottom of 11, the conclusion. The Bible calls us to live with a mysterious tension. While we maintain our individuality in terms of personal, moral responsibility and accountability, that's on the strength of Galatians 6, 4 to 5, but let each one test his own work and then... His reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. What is Paul saying here? He is saying, as much as the principle of neutrality and solidarity is in fact, when the day is over and we stand before the judgment of God, I'm only going to give account for how I live, not anybody else live. It's just me and God. Um, right? So there's a sense in which, after I see how united we are with each other, I have to bear the responsibility and accountability for my life before God. You probably know that. We sort of know that intuitively. But we're not getting to heaven on anybody else's coattails. And we, can't be hide, we can't hide behind someone else's good efforts as our own. God, right? Each one has to test his own work. So here's the tension. While we maintain that individual individuality, it is nonetheless the case that because every believer is united to Christ and therefore one with Christ and in solidarity with his body, 
Each of us, therefore, must also be united to all other believers who are one with him. This is just a summary of the point we've been making through the class. You are so intimately in solidarity, that is, one with, identified with, his people, that whatever is done to or not done to them is equally done to or not done to your own family members, and dare I say, yourself. And Christ is so intimately in solidarity, that is, one with, identified with his people, that whatever is done to or not done to them is equally done to or not done to Christ. That's where we begin with the least of these. Note, the basis for the final judgment is on each one's work. No distinction is made between their gender, their age, their status, their nationality, their race, their physical appearance, their preferences, their music styles, or whatever. Okay, let's push pause. Comments, thoughts, questions? So the, the reason to seek, to work hard, to pray, to think first about our relationship with people with whom act, look, think, speak differently than us is not located in them. It's located in who I am in Christ, what Christ has done for me. Because if you locate it in another person, you're always going to find a reason humanly not to love them. Just like God has a million reasons not to love you, but you are loved, and with that love, we can bear with, forgive, get, and when, when I return, the next two, um, Nate Green's going to teach you next week, and then Dora's going to teach you on December 1st, when I come back on the 8th, I'm going to get a, I've got another diagram that's going to help us look specifically at this, what, Mike has another diagram, imagine that, <laughs> okay, so the last thing is just to, just to note the glory of diverse ethnic diversity into eternity. And so um, we'll have a, one person read each of these, um, four people read each of these. So who's going to read Matthew 25 for us? Great. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Thank you, Joan Cathy. So the separation is based on how, how they treated Jesus, not their nationality. Revelation 14.6. Marty? And I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. To worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Thank you. Revelation not, uh, 7, 9, and 10. Dorian? After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Revelation 21, 23 through 26, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, but the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring that glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Thank you, Pat. So, in the renewed earth, there will still be distinct national ethnicity. It'll be diverse and glorious, and it'll be brought in and out of the great city. Now, Revelation 7, everyone standing before the throne, they're appropriately crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And it's people from every nation, tribe, peoples, and languages. I don't know what that's going to look like. Whether it's in all their dis different languages saying this, it would be presumptuous of me to believe it was in English, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> but that would be how I would instinctively think about it, right? My language is the best, yeah, right? So there they are in all their glorious diversity. And this is what God wants. He had them spread over the earth from Babel onward, and he's bringing them back to the throne for eternity onward. Okay. So, uh, thank you for your attendance. Did we run, I'm sorry we ran out of these. I promise never to make that mistake again. And uh, any comments you want to make as we close this portion of the class? We're really, we're, we're ending this portion. Okay, I'll get to pray for you all. Even in this room, Lord, we see diversity. Uh, gender and skin color and um, age, it's just stunningly beautiful. And, and we're going to go downstairs here in a minute, and we'll see even more diversity in this gathering called Wallace Presbyterian Church. Thank you for what you've done. There's a little snippet here of the nation's gathering. And Lord, as we do, uh, fulfill the desire of our hearts to bring glory and honor to the crucified Christ, the risen Lamb, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, our Prince of Peace. Pour out your Spirit, Lord, into the hearts of my brothers and sisters to revive them, to encourage them, to increasingly draw them to yourself that they might, savoring your goodness and grace and glory and mercy and love, be transformed into those who are especially equipped and adept at loving those different than them. Make this congregation to do that well, right here in our own community. So we thank you for the privilege of freely, without fear of our lives, gathering in worship. Have mercy on our brothers and sisters elsewhere in this troubled and dark world who do not have that same freedom. Particularly for the early rain church in China, we pray for the release of the pastor, for the hope and strength, steadfastness of the believers, that they would maintain their testimony in the face of danger. Fill them with all glory, all comfort, hope of uh, everlasting glory. And uh, use us in our generation to serve the purposes of God. In Jesus' name, 